0: This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, chameleon collective founding partner, Freddie Laker. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another riveting episode of the O Ship Show, your trusted source for the highs, lows, and everything in between in the world of entrepreneurship, leadership, and innovation. Our episode today is titled Evolving and Innovating as a Leader, and we're thrilled to be joined by an exceptional leader who has redefined the contours of social networking, live streaming, and digital dating. Ladies and gents, we're set to sail with none other than Jeff Cook, the serial entrepreneur and co-founder of The Meet Group. With popular apps like Meet Me, Scout, and tagged under their banner, The Meet Group has become a veritable titan in the industry, fostering millions of daily conversations, connections, and meaningful relationships. From co-founding myyearbook.com to helming innovative ventures like Resume Edge or Essay Edge, Jeff Cook's entrepreneurial journey is a captivating tale of creativity, resilience, and visionary leadership. He's managed to successfully integrate a global team, spearhead game-changing acquisitions, and pioneer some of the most significant milestones in social networking, mobile apps, and live streaming video. And in today's conversation, we're diving deep into the inception of the Meet Group, exploring Jeff's insights on team collaboration and probing into the future of social networking live streaming technologies. We'll discuss the complexities of company acquisitions, understand the essence of product impact, and delve into the core values that guide Jeff's decision-making processes. From fostering a culture of innovation to managing team motivation amidst growth and mergers, Jeff has a wealth of knowledge to share. We'll explore his advice for budding entrepreneurs in the social apps and online dating world. We're going to unpack the role of mentorship and networking in his journey, and we're going to get his take on the increasingly blurry lines between social media and live streaming platforms. So whether you're a seasoned entrepreneur, an aspiring leader, or simply fascinated by the dynamic of social apps and live streaming, this episode promises to be an exciting journey into the mind of one of the industry's brightest stars. So full steam ahead. Let's get started with this week's O-Ship show. Jeff, welcome to O-Ship. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I love that intro. <laughs> <laughs> I could be your hype man anytime you let me know. <laughs> so I'm really excited to have you on as I've got a really fascinating entrepreneurial journey and you've done it with a series of businesses that have touched many of our lives. And I think a lot of people may not even realize you know, some of the businesses you've been involved in. I want to get into a lot of about how you think about the world later in this episode, but can we go back to a little bit of the beginning? I'd like to just kind of understand your journey and inspiration between how you got to the inception of the meet group. What motivated you ultimately to venture into the world of live streaming and social dating apps?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think what I noticed, and it really have to go back all the way to 1997. So my first company was actually not the meet group. It was a company called CyberEdit. And I built this up as a student at Harvard grew it to about 5 million in revenue ultimately sold it and so it was 2004 when I had some funds I had just been successful on some level and I happened to be you know user 13017 of Facebook right so Facebook was only at Harvard and I thought this social networking thing is going to be big I think there was just this Intuition that I had, and I tend to like to follow kind of novel technologies and paths. And so I started building out a social network, actually, along with my siblings who were 10 and 11 years younger than me. And we launched that. That was originally called My Yearbook. We launched that in one high school, it was the high school of my brother and sister in Skillman, New Jersey. So were they still in high
0: school when they were kind of collaborating with you on this?
1: Oh yeah, they were in like 10th and 11th grade. Like we were literally getting ideas at lunch tables to incorporate it into the website. And at that point, the engineers were all in India. It was very much done on the cheap. Certain ideas that kind of came into the app really came, actually emerged from lunch table conversations. We quickly went from my yearbook as kind of high school social network to my yearbook as social network for meeting new people. And along the way, we kind of rode that first from social network on the web to mobile meeting app on iPhone and Android. We were very early to mobile. Around that same time, we kind of did what was like a SPAC-like deal. We merged my yearbook in 2011 into a public shell. And then at that point, we became the meet group thinking we would do a lot of m and and we renamed the My Yearbook product to Meet Me to just better reflect what it was to kind of outside parties. That journey was quite successful, and that kind of began the chapter of kind of public company CEO. You asked about live streaming video. That's one of the more recent chapters in that book. With live streaming video, that emerged because I was spending some time in China back in 2015. I was visiting different companies, companies that were you know, large live streamers like YY, somebody happened to show me Momo pretty early and Momo was very similar to how the meet me app was set up. And so I kind of saw that Momo's live streaming video, if it could be successful on Momo, which is kind of a Chinese dating property, perhaps I could bring that concept to a Western audience by kind of translating not just localizing, but like taking the user experience and trying to update it for a user audience. So the concept at that point was make everybody the star of their own, you know, dating game. So you could use live streaming video to do that. We were very much a meeting dating product. And so we launched a feature that did that. And and then that journey, uh, that that proved extremely successful. So live streaming video quickly became, you know, the biggest product for MeetMe. But at that same time, you know, because we were always looking to go down this portfolio path, we we kind of married this live streaming video with a strategic kind of mandate to acquire certain companies that were very like us. And so each with the concept of adding live streaming video to it, um, that we acquired four companies that was quite successful. Each one live streaming video became a large portion of revenue and then from there we kind of ran out of things to buy in you know, given price ranges 50 to 100 million which is where we could basically get deals done and at that point i reached out to you know the biggest dating company in the world the match group and we did a deal with one of their apps plenty of fish we ended up powering about 6 or 7 of the top 50 social apps in the world with live streaming video and creator economy so we created this enterprise business which we called at the time video platform as a service and that kind of brings us back to current day. Along the way, I recently, in the last few years, sold and then exited the company. I'm no longer CEO of the Me Group, but of course, it was a, a really <laughs> tremendous.
0: <laughs> there's a hell of a ride and there's so much to unpack in what you just shared. I'm going to repeat some back and then we're going to dive into it. First off, I just think the fact that you kind of ended up running a publicly traded company, which I'm guessing is quite early in your career. That must have been a hell of a ride in its own way. You're doing a heck of a lot of acquisitions, which I think is another interesting area that we should touch into. And then I can't help but find it really fascinating. You know, you go to the beginning of your story, you're at Harvard at the same time that Facebook's being put together, you get inspired by this concept of social networking. It starts off more not in dating. So you're like this idea of yearbox, but then this concept of people, you know, meeting on the back of this mm. platform kind of naturally happens. And then There seems to be this really consistent trend where you're basically you're a trend watcher, you're reacting to some of the trends that are happening out there. And then you see this new opportunity as you're kind of observing some of the Chinese dating app trends and then bringing some of that over here. And all of a sudden now you're like an enterprise tech platform company as well, which I think is really fascinating. I don't think many people could say all those things in a 90-second window like you just did. Really <laughs> find cool.
1: the parade and jump in front of it.
0: That's ideally <laughs>
1: multiple parades.
0: Yeah, that's funny. Worth noting, I did a stint in Shanghai. I spent about 10, 11 months living there in 2011. And I think what was really interesting was people were talking about how the Chinese were adopting a lot of the kind of Western platforms Mm. ideas. But the reality was loads, as you've noted, loads of really interesting innovations were being created there, which had then come this way. And now you really look at that firsthand with TikTok being such a huge and dominant Mm. force Mm. inside the U.S. media ecosystem. Absolutely. I mean, that was my observation
1: back in 2016 to probably as late as 2019, that the Chinese were just dramatically ahead of the United States and all sorts of social innovation. And that's no longer the case. In the last few years, there's been a crackdown on the Chinese tech industry that has kind of made it much more difficult to be as innovative as they were. Back then, they seemed to try every single thing you could possibly try against the biggest you know, mobile audience in the world. And unsurprisingly, they had you know, many massive hits and found Mm. really interesting pathways. And Mm. TikTok, of course, being, you know, case in point. But I think they've certainly dropped the ball on the innovation front. Now the U.S. is obviously racing ahead on the generative AI side.
0: Mm. It's, It's easy to forget for a lot of people who haven't worked in that market that you've got, you know, Many, many more people using smartphones than basically the right. entire U.S. population. And uh, you think about the impact of what that might have in some of these these spaces. So on that note, as a kind of you know, pioneer, let's say, in the social networking, mobile apps, live streaming video space, you know, we talked about some of these innovations coming up and how they're being impacted on both sides of the Pacific or the Atlantic, depending on how you want to think about it. What do you think the next big major milestone in these evolution of these techs or these industries might be?
1: It is hard for me to think it's not AI, right? I mean, as cliche as that might sound, I had the recent kind of unexpected pleasure of briefly with Sam Altman backstage at a conference in San Francisco, maybe a couple months ago. And I'm also, I would say, a daily user of the app PoE, you know, PoE, which allows you to kind of query different leading AI models like Claude Plus, of course, GPT-4. And I use it probably every day. Wow, yeah, I have the, to be the, honest,
0: I'm not on that one. So I know what I'll be doing yeah. right after this episode.
1: <laughs> yeah, I get, get it. I, I pay for the subscription. I'm not associated with the company. Yeah, yeah. I find if I'm going to ask a chat bot, I want the best one. Back many years ago, you know, ha- happened to see Replica, which is now a huge business. And it was just obvious to me that people were going to interface with AI as if it were, you know, a human and in a dating context in a meeting context in a friendship context. I think that's all quite clear. That how that how, do, you think, how happen. do you think
0: it can enhance those or change even the dynamic of those kind of experiences?
1: Yeah. I actually worry a lot about that. <laughs> you
0: know, not, not in a good way, basically. Right,
1: right, right. I mean, you know, one of the things that kind of troubles me in general is business models kind of formed on the basis of parasocial, relationships, which, you know, you often will see in a few to many, one to many kind of live streaming context, where, you know, a parasocial relationship is where one side of the relationship feels a depth of connection that the other side does not feel. And, and, you know, it's common in an influencer, creator, whatever you want to call them, celebrity, that's a frequent sort of relationship context for humans. And the AI kind of takes it or at least has the capacity to take it to its dystopian conclusion, right? You build mm. an entire relationship with an AI that not only does not feel for you, but appears to, but is incapable of any feeling whatsoever. You know, it it may all the to still notes. make you
0: feel that way, which yeah. could be incredibly detrimental to someone's mental health.
1: Or, yeah, it could be detrimental or, you know, and I think the jury's still out. It's mm. clear that maybe in some cases that might be better than that person simply being completely alone. profoundly alone. But if it keeps them away from outdoor kind of in-person activities, Mm -hmm. then it is absolutely detrimental. And there's a great read that I'd encourage everyone to take a look at that the Surgeon General of the United States, you know, Vivek Murthy recently put out an 80 page report PDF on loneliness. You could Google it and find it and basically suggests that, you know, not having good social support structures is equivalent to like smoking 15 cigarettes a day on health outcomes, you know. No. And so I think the jury is still out on how AI will come into the social universe. Right? I suggested an aspect where the, the AI seems to feel, but doesn't, you could imagine a situation where it actually does feel and, you know, maybe that rescues and allows for rich interface between human and AI in t- the future, obviously creating other potential. It's a really
0: crazy application that just popped into my head. There is someone told me about a service that they were aware that someone they knew had outsourced to, that they were using one of the dating apps. And basically they were paying an outsourced service where basically it was an offshore team that they had provided kind of like the hundred most common questions that happen in these kind of you know pre-date interactions that people have on the platform. And that basically they were just swiping on people. And then this offshore team was logged into their account and was literally chatting with people on their behalf answering how they would have answered for the Mm. most part, but then basically with a goal of only setting up in-person dates for them. And they had basically Mm. outsourced their dating, which I thought was Mm. crazy. And then, you know, basically I had heard that this person had found their significant other and was wondering if they should tell them Mm. that the person that they initially chatted with was probably (laughs) probably someone sitting in some, you know, Southeast Asian country or something. And so, you know, why couldn't that be an AI at this point? So, you know, will people start shifting? I mean, will someone build a chat bot mm. to kind of do this for them in these dating apps? It's probably inevitable at this point. And, you know, I think what that's the already ethical here. questions. Is yeah. that great? You know, it's, it's kind I, of wild. Wow. Yeah.
1: I, I think that's already here. You know, there's some very large apps that have already said they're using generative AI in order to help you with conversation starters. And I actually know somebody who has a very similar story to the one you just told. And he's currently the CEO of a dating app. I won't say which one, but his first business was being the Tinder, you know, outsourcing Tinder. Tinder. And and he was very good at Tinder supposedly, and I'm sure he was. And others would leverage that service just to get that, yeah, those in-person connections. It's, It's a brave new world.
0: Interesting time to be not only a user in this space, but probably to be an entrepreneur or business owner in this space. On that note, is there any chance you could share any advice you might have for any aspiring entrepreneurs who might be looking to build a successful business in this very competitive world of social apps and online dating?
1: Yeah, I think it has gotten more and more competitive. I would say when I started a company, it was basically... At the beginning of the social networking wave, then kind of grew through the beginning of the mobile app wave, and then was at the beginning of the live streaming video wave. I think you need to find a wave to be at the beginning of, and I think there will always be those. Generative AI is the technology of our times. There's going to be plenty of fortunes kind of made and lost pursuing that strategy. It'd be hard not for me to think that whatever it is that you should be building should not have some connection to that. But you know, what I've said in the past, and I certainly believe this is an approach to innovation is it ultimately follows a novelty search, right? Like yeah. there's a great book, why greatness cannot be planned. And it basically makes the point that all innovation is essentially the result of novelty search. Like there's no science to a good idea. A good idea always starts in the head of a human being. And, you know, that conception is then tested against the marketplace. And so, you know, I think if you're an entrepreneur building today, you have to be kind of setting yourself up to have those good ideas, whatever that means. On my blog, my medium, I talk about trying to cultivate your inwardness through solitude, whatever it is that you do to try to create the inner life to have good ideas, whether that's reading a lot, reading diverse perspectives, listening to pods or audiobooks. I think you have to kind of make these connections across disciplines. I tend to think a good idea tends to just be a connection across disciplines. You have to be very cognizant of what are the waves where fortunes will probably be created in the next 10 to 20 years. And then you have to be willing to follow an extremely winding path there because almost no story, even if they get retold as we went from point A to point B, they they went there in such a unique way that could never be replicated. And it's that search for novelty. And by novelty, if you think about survival of the fittest in evolution, you know that's actually not how evolution proceeds. Survival of the fittest was not Darwin's term. It was survival of the fit. And yeah. there's this sense in which evolution isn't trying to create the perfect, most efficient form to outcompete everything else. It's filling areas where there is no competition, right? Mm-hmm. And so I like to think of that is a prettier picture for how innovation should proceed, right? Go where others aren't, Mm -hmm. right? Go where maybe they even can't easily go. And you'll have more room to maybe develop that idea into something. But, you know, what I've found is you fail a lot. And those failures, you know, they're not failures if they produce some glimmer of insight that turns the product in a different direction or the strategy in a different direction. And at some point, you may experience what kind of appears to be product market fit. And it probably will only have happened because you followed this impossible to replicate path. And that's the reason you'll have a moat, right? Because the tide has kind of risen while you kind of followed these stepping stones that no one else can now find because the tide has risen. And so I think of innovation as proceeding in that way. And that's why it's entrepreneur led, right? Because only an entrepreneur is going to be crazy and committed enough to keep following that path. And big companies tend to get tired or they may even fire the, the product manager or the executive yeah. because you know nothing was created in the first 12 months. And it doesn't work that way. Sometimes That's think- a
0: great advice. Uh, I really enjoyed that. And I think a lot of other people will find a lot of value. That answer came from the heart, but it obviously came from a lot of experience, accumulated experience, both in terms of starting a lot of businesses, but in trying, going through finding the elusive product market fit and how you get there. One of the other really interesting things that is in your background that I'd love to dip into is the fact that you have acquired uh, a lot of companies, you've been through mergers, things like that. What, that's not something that every guest I get on our ship has experience with. I'd love to hear any advice you might have for other entrepreneurs or business leaders who are kind of navigating the complexities of you know acquisitions, mergers, business consolidation.
1: Yeah, if I look back on my background, it seemed like I'm just a portfolio manager, right? Like, So so even going all the way back to my very first business, 1997, you know, 18 or 19 years old, I had two brands, Essay Edge and Resume Edge. And uh, there were even other brands that th- those were the two that kind of developed some commercial success. And then at the Meek Group, you know, as early as 2011, it was really, you know, can we create multiple brands? And then ultimately, we acquired, you know, four, as, as I mentioned. And I think, The reason for, you know, portfolio makes sense at the end of the day is that you probably have a mission that is much broader than your current product can ever be. And that's because if you think about marketing an app today, they tend to be apps that solve a particular problem. There are super apps, but they're rarer, right? And they tend to be super apps that emerge only after capturing like everybody in a country every day. And so I think different gravity and rules apply to them. But when you create a super app out of something that, you know, is otherwise not particularly well known, you're kind of diluting the marketing message, you're probably hurting your conversion rate. So
0: have the Americans ever had a super app? I know what you're thinking of when it refers to Asia, but I'm trying to think if there's ever been a kind of do everything app in the US that pops to mind.
1: That's a great point. Not in the same sense as Asia. I think Facebook has always wanted to become that, but hasn't really mm-hmm. been able to break into it. I'm not necessarily even meaning super app in the sense of handling, let's say payments, dating and friendship and DMS, right. And mm-hmm. with friends, like that's kind of the conventional, you know, super app. I'm even thinking in the point of view of like, let's imagine in the dating business, can you have, you know, tinder and eHarmony in the same business right mm-hmm. like you know one end of the spectrum
0: gotcha gotcha more like segments uh, and, of customer audiences right, within right. one pain point Got and it.
1: at okay. least within dating you know people tend to gather in brands based on the other people that are using those networks right and so mm. you know they tend to want to be on the apps that work for them whether that's some feature combination or demographic fit combination and so you kind of naturally end up in a portfolio, but I don't think dating is all that unique. I I think the digital wellness space is probably like that. You know, I think the social discovery kind of friendship finding space is probably like that. I think it's probably most sectors are are like that. You're not going to solve it with one gigantic app. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the question was like, I think I hit upon portfolio pretty early. And then I think, you know, one of the challenges of course, of building a portfolio is kind of putting together these disparate, teams and i think if you're going to buy something i think what you need to have is a really clear sense of what you're going to do with it right it may sound obvious but you know it, it seems like that gets violated a lot by very large companies but you have to have this sense that you're bringing in some plan there's probably a cost synergy plan fa- frankly like i think a lot of acquisitions are conducted because there's a cost synergy that could be realized by combining the two teams, that can't be it, right? So you, you can never just conduct, from my perspective, you can never just conduct an M&A transaction only on the basis of the cost synergy because they, they often prove difficult to realize you may only get 50% of what you expected. And I think the main reason is you're never going to inspire the team you just acquired if the whole plan is to just further the cost synergy. And so there has to be some strategic or product basis for that and mm. in our case we had a ready-made one right it was basically add live streaming video to these other applications mm. to be the innovation for these large networks because it really wasn't just to be live streaming video mm. it was also we felt like we were you know mm. good at kind of skating where the puck is going and so it would be live streaming video today it would be something else tomorrow but what we prized was the network that we found very durable i think social apps of scale they can be hard to grow but they're also hard to kill because they're they have these natural gravity to them, and so if you can innovate with that network scale, I think you could build you know something powerful.
0: beyond the kind of like product expansion and audience expansion. Can you talk about what it means to like integrate your cultures and companies? Like how do you get these people to come together mm-hmm. and have it not blow up in your face or? You know, mm. buy something and then it disintegrates because it wasn't integrated well and you kind of lost the value of the company you bought. How have you managed to be successful with that over the years? It's a great question and
1: it differs on a case-by-case basis based on the strategy you're going in with and what that company does. So a, a couple examples, if there's a big cost synergy, which is often the case, then it's best to map out what that synergy is, be very up clear up front with the founders or whoever are the decision makers on the M&A transaction and list their support because typically these deals are done on EBITDA in like the, the out year. So let's say next year EBITDA or even you know two years out EBITDA. Yeah. And at that point, of course, the entrepreneurs who you're typically buying from, they want to get a deal done. They have every good intention of trying to give you good advice on trying to get there. If you were to acquire that company before you mapped out the synergy, I think you'd find the second the deal closed that the entrepreneur becomes, well, I'm just going to protect my team. You have to address the difficult issues of kind of cost synergy upfront. Mm -hmm. When you do that, then you also need to say, well, what's the upside? Like, what is the vision for the remaining team? How do you bring them into your culture? I recently was trying to figure that out. Like, why is it that it worked in our case? Like, is there any framework? And the best that I kind of came up with, I'll call it the Friedman framework, because it was my longtime CTO, Rich Friedman, who suggested it. But. You've I, I heard think it it more, here, folks.
0: We've coined a new business and so Friedman gets the credit today. This is actually the first <laughs> time
1: I've ever used those two words together.
0: But will <laughs> be, be honored, I'm sure. It's
1: alliterative, so it can't go wrong. <laughs> but the idea behind it is you got to go in listening, right? So when you acquire one of these companies, you make yourself extra visible. Every four to six weeks, you're there. In, in my case, I would alternate every four to six weeks being there with another executive who's there, my COO, who's there every four to six weeks. so. basically you're there. And then when you're there, you're not just listening to the executives. You're listening to what I've found, directors and architects and up. So you're doing one-on-ones. You're trying to take them out of the office setting. You're going for coffee walks or walks I find are just great for, you know, maybe freeing the conversation a bit. You're trying to understand what it is that they need. Uh, Obviously the reason you're listening is because you're trying to learn how that might affect some of your next steps, right? What are the Mm -hmm. pitfalls to worry about? When you're just coming in, you mm-hmm. can't expect that you've figured all of that out. You haven't. You probably haven't talked to the team at all, other than the founders, maybe, up until the closing of the deal. And so, you know, they may have thoughts like, what are some things they would do to improve it? I think that listen, that learn, and then communicate. So, you know, you mm-hmm. have to communicate frequently. I was a big fan of weekly management meetings with the core team and then bi weekly all hands and then. Mm-hmm one-on-ones with architects and directors and up mm-hmm. and monthly. And so like, I think that level of communication helps build this basis of confidence. And, and then ultimately that confidence, you need to blossom into trust. But what you're communicating is, I often think in terms of this kind of, and this is not an original idea. Mm-hmm. I think this is Bob Iger who got it from somebody else, but you know, three pillars, just three pillars of a business. What are your three pillars? They're, they're the pillars that turn the crank of the business. And so every time you're talking, you should be mentioning, like in in all hands, how how these things relate to the pillars of the business. And if you're doing that, then at least everybody's on the same page. And then you could map all the team's products and priorities to those pillars. And people at least understand it. people might disagree on what the pillar should be, but they at least understand it. And then if you want to gain the trust of a team, you have to show trust, of course. You know, it's not something you can't kind of get it without giving it. And so you, you have to empower that team to go execute on what it is and then Mm -hmm. you know the quality of your vision will be determined by if that team executes do they achieve the result if that happens you have trust right because Mm -hmm. then suddenly you've mapped out this path you know not everybody believed in it but you you communicated along the way confidence was built
0: and then trust is everything it's hard to get anything done with a leadership team if you haven't got trust in place in my opinion
1: yeah, it's really hard. And we faced it in different places. When we acquired a company in Germany, it wasn't necessarily thinking, oh, live streaming video should be in dating. While that was natural and second nature to me at that point, it really took some convincing. And so it, we tried not to be heavy handed there. Just coming in and saying, well, we're doing this because now we own it on the company. It was more like, here's why. Here's the dynamics at play. Here's how we can test it. If it doesn't work, we're going to take a sliver of the teams and we're going to show that it does work. And if it doesn't work, we're not committed to it. We're not religious on this topic. So I think people need to understand that you're kind of a flexible leader willing to react, but you're also willing to test things.
0: Yeah. There's a strong product market, product marketer built into you there, product guy. I want to change gears a little bit. A lot of the premise of their ship show is this concept of like resilience and how different entrepreneurs and different leaders deal with, you know, adversity. And I think as you've talked through your history today, and for those people that may have known you before this episode, you've clearly had a great successful run, but I can't imagine that it was always perfect the whole way through. I'd be honored if you could share an example, of maybe a time that you faced a significant setback, and if you'd be willing to share how you kind of bounce back from that, or maybe how you dealt with it.
1: Yeah. You know, at least two come to mind. Very early in our history, I would say maybe it was 2009, 2010, when we were still largely a website, we built out with the teams this really what I thought was an interesting live streaming video meets gaming platform. Chat Roulette had just came out, but obviously had the famous Chat Roulette problem, which is one of moderation. <laughs> and we thought we could solve that. You know, we, th- we felt like that was a solvable problem. And we thought, well, we had this site where people were meeting each other. If we could give them a way to do that over video and then give them something to do to kind of remove some of the awkwardness. And so we kind of combined these casual games with kind of a one-on-one chat roulette style video where you're kind of getting your next partner, Mm -hmm. uh, you can play games. And it was just a total disaster, right? It was a lot of work to build out and it was just a very awkward sort of experience. It wasn't really natural at all. And, you know, I think it, it led to high friction, you know, cause not a lot of people, of course, want to put their face out there and stream video, right? It soured us on video for probably like five or six years.
0: So I never thought about it that way, that in a dating world where you can kind of control pictures and things like that and control your image that the live video kind of instantly eradicates any ability to kind of fluff up your brand, so to speak. So anyway, sorry to interrupt, please continue. Uh,
1: yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. It's high friction. Yeah. And so it failed. It failed in such a way that it kind of just led to instant r- removal. It was so obviously so far from success that, you know, I think we, we ran it for two or three months. You know, that was a major endeavor for that year and it failed. But I think the lessons that we took out of it were we could have potentially realized the difficulty of overcoming the friction of streaming up front. We could have potentially realized the awkwardness of kind of the chat related experience, which is itself awkward. It maybe may not be improved that much by games. But I think the lesson we ended up learning and the reason we would later go on to build a live streaming video product that became our number one product and number one revenue source was, it was clear that the friction to creation was the main problem. That didn't rule out video working. It ruled out that video format working. And so if you could figure out a format where, every creator could entertain 10 people, then your video platform might work because it's so long as that were true, right? So long as there was an experience for the non-creator. And I think I became much more cognizant after that, that you can't just build this stuff for creators. And
0: hope (laughs) hope that's 30 people signing on that day.
1: (laughs) So I, I certainly learned that. And then I would say a human thing that kind of I learned that I've been in the business for 18 years. At one point, and it was some time ago, this is probably more than 10 years ago, or ish there was a riff you know i think ad cpms had fallen advertising rates had fallen and it was probably one of the first riffs might have been the first one we ever did and it kind of affected me obviously it's not the situation you want to be in and on the other side of it i was basically like getting frustrated this seems small i got frustrated with like seeing people play on like ping pong or foosball and you know, we had a very san francisco like office in, in that sense and so i got rid of the ping pong table. That was a terrible mistake. You know, it seems like- Never a mess with the building. ping pong table.
0: Don't mess <laughs> or the with the ping pong table. table.
1: <laughs> or any of the accoutrements. Like yeah. once there is some perk that comes out, free lunches, you know, think hard about offering the perk. But once it's out there, it's so hard to pull back because it becomes part of just the expectation in the culture. And that was the wrong way to think that people are playing games on the other side of it, right? Like p- People are being human. Right? Of course, you want them to be human and you want them to play games and, you know, don't, I mean, this don't is, inflate it's, it's the two.
0: Intertwined with like the remote work thing. I think some people are like, well, if they're doing that, how are they getting their work done? I think at the end of the day, my personal opinion is that workforces should be measured by their output. It doesn't matter when they're doing it or how they're doing it, as long as they're doing it. They, they probably feel frustrated when you think that people are just playing games all the time. But, yeah, you know, ultimately, they're responsible for getting their work done.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's certainly deals that I wish I had closed. We acquired four. I would have loved to acquire more, <laughs> but you know, you can't get them all.
0: Great advice. And I, I really appreciate the honesty and the humility in, in sharing their stories. This has been a really great episode today. I was thrilled to get you on. I'm joyful that you were able to join us today. I know a lot of other people will have enjoyed this as well. There's been some incredibly useful insights along the way. If people want to follow you or learn more about you or engage with you in any way, what's the best place for them to go find you?
1: Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, check out my LinkedIn. I think I'm pretty easy to find there. You can check out my medium. I do blog on entrepreneurship every now and again, often through the lens of a poet like Rumi or Rilke. So you can take a look there.
0: That's great. Thanks very much, Jeff. And I do want to thank everyone that's been tuning in today, whether you're watching via any of the video streams or you are tuning in via our audio podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate you. Actually, in the last week, we passed 15,000 subscribers on the podcast, which was a huge breakthrough for us. So we thank all our new audio listeners. But we love, love streaming live on YouTube and Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and all the other places we stream our video stream. But if you want to find out more, go to OShipShow.com and you can see all the different places that we're streaming and share it with a friend. That's the best thing you can do to support the show. Give us a like, leave a comment, share it on your social feed. All of that is really, really appreciated and you're helping us bring this content to you week in and week out every week. Jeff, thanks again. Can't thank you enough. Really great episode. And I hope to meet you in person one day. Same here. Thank you so much, Freddie. Great. See you next week, shippers. Bye-bye.